We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 this morning, verses 38 to 41. It's a short text. We're moving through Mark. We're over halfway. And I'm going to read along here. The words are going to be on your screen. They're also on your handout if you have one of those. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For, whatever, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Small little text that has a huge amount of implications. Let's just look at verse 38. Teacher, says John. John's one of the twelve. Sometimes we use the term disciples, but a disciple is a broad term that means anybody who's following Jesus. Apostle is these twelve chosen ones, and John is part of this inner circle of the twelve. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. So it's someone. They don't know the person's name. That's why I've titled the message The Unknown Exorcist. He's not known to any of the twelve. He's driving out demons, so he's, he's enacting a, something that Jesus and the apostles have been doing. This is a deliverance ministry. He's coming upon people who are possessed to, uh, to some degree by demons or being, are being demonized, and he's helping to free them. He's doing it in Jesus' name. It says he's not just casting out demons. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. So on some level, he's a follower, and I'll make an argument for why that is in a second. And then John says, but we, we, we kibosh that right away. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, that translation of he was not one of us, that's a little bit tricky. Exactly what's being inferred there, we're not sure. Your translation might say because, they, because he was not following us, and it's not clear whether or not the us refers to like Jesus and the 12 or just like us like the important 12. He, they, he wasn't following us. We follow you, Jesus, but he wasn't following us. So there's a, a bit of ambiguity in terms of why John shuts this down. Now, we do have reason to believe the person who's casting out these demons is a sincere follower of Jesus. The text gives us no reason to believe that this person was acting insincerely or flippantly or with corrupt motives. And the reason is we have another example in Scripture. It's Acts 19, the sons of Sceva. You're like, what? Yeah, that's actually in the Bible. Acts 19, where there are some other people who are trying to cast out demons using the name of Jesus. And this is the account in the book of Acts of what happens to them. Some Jews, verse, uh, Acts 19, verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And what they would say is, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they think that the, the name Jesus is kind of like, it's magical. So I don't know Jesus, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I saw someone else cast out a demon in Jesus' name, I'm going to invoke that name, even though I'm not a believer. Verse 14 says, The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, 
And one day, the evil spirit answered them, command you in this name of Jesus, who Paul talks about, come out of this man. And the spirit says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? That's awkward slash scary if a demon pauses and says, who are you again? Do I know you? And then, verse 16, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So the scripture gives us a clear indication that demon, some, some kind of prayerful deliverance from demons isn't something that just automatically ha- that anybody can do. And if you simply try and invoke the name of Jesus to do it, you might be um, kind of treading dangerous waters. So this is someone who seems to be successful in casting out demons. There's not a story about how he's failing. John's saying he needs to stop doing this. So this is what we would call a Christian. They hadn't had that term yet. But this is a follower of Jesus. He's not part of the twelve. He's not known to them, so he's a little bit more of a fringe character. He's someone. They don't have a name. But he's taken the initiative. He's, he's heard about how Jesus and the apostles are casting out demons. Maybe he's seen it from the periphery. And he's taking the initiative to say, I want to be a part of this kingdom ministry. I want to help people. Maybe God's given me certain gifts to do, uh, to, to minister to people and to see people set free. The 12 disciples, again, apostles, tell him to stop. They're saying, this is not right. Now, there's three reasons that I can think of why they're telling him to stop. First of all, they might be telling him to stop because they think that that's their job, right? We follow Jesus. We're part of an elite circle. We're the 12, which is an allusion to the 12 tribes of Israel. Ever heard of it? Kind of a big deal? Yeah, we're kind of a big deal. So we do those big miracles. We do the big stuff. You can pray for people, and you can help out, and you can serve. We do the big stuff, though. We do the, we do the signs and wonders and the miraculous. They see it as their right or as their privilege. And connected to that, they see Jesus' kingdom as being established specifically through them. Because, because of who we are, because of how Jesus called us, because of this designation as apostles that Jesus has given us, the kingdom of God is breaking forth through Jesus, for sure, but through Jesus, through us. We are the conduit through which God's kingdom is going to break forth. So if God's kingdom is breaking forth over here, outside of the bounds and uh, outside of the boundaries of the 12, that for us raises suspicions. That's at least a red flag, but John would say in this case, it's a or yellow flag, but and John would say in this case, it's a red flag. We shut that down. And the third kind of thing for me is there might be also an issue of jealousy or envy here. Remember, it's not too long ago in Mark that the 12 were trying to cast out demons from a boy who was demon-possessed, and they failed. Fast forward a little bit of time, now there's this somebody, a nobody, he's not part of the 12, he's casting out demons? So there's this sense in which maybe the... 12 are resentful. They're envious of the success of someone else. That's what they want to be able to do. They couldn't do it. They were embarrassed for not being able to do it. And then they come upon someone else succeeding where they had failed. Don't you do that. You shut that down right now. Not just maybe because they think that it's the kingdom supposed to come through them, but maybe because 
they don't want to draw attention to the fact that, again, they failed, that there's that, um, that challenge to them on a personal level that says, this person's succeeding while I failed as an apostle. What does that say about me? What kind of shame does that bring on myself or embarrassment? So let's just shut the whole thing down. Jesus says in verse 39, don't stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. That is a principle that you should consider underlining in your Bible. It's a really, really important principle. And I think it has ramifications on at least two levels, maybe two concentric circles of influence. The first one I think is pretty, pretty clear. And it's in response to the question, as a Christian, what should our fundamental posture be towards those Christians who are seeking to minister in Jesus' name, but who aren't following us? They're not a part of our church. They're not a part of our theological tribe. They're not a part of the evangelical covenant church. They see things differently. They um, use slightly different language. They use different methodology. What should be our fundamental posture? What should our first reaction be when we see people who are not following us, not a part of our group, doing ministry in Jesus' name? And I think the answer to that that Jesus is alluding to here and making clear is we should have a posture of celebration. We should have a posture of celebration. We should be excited that there are Christians taking steps of faith to try and minister in love to people in this world. We're going to give each other a high five this morning. I don't trust anybody here knows how to do a proper high five, so I've created a diagram. <laughs> the diagram's simple. High fives are not as easy as you think. There are tons of videos on the internet of people uh, doing awkward high fives. So the actual way you do a high five is you face the person and aim for their elbow. And if both people do that, you end up with a flawless high five. That's counterintuitive because you think, no, you aim for the hand. You don't aim for the hand because there's all kinds of... Uh, I'm not going to get into the science because I don't know it. The point is, aim for the elbow. So turn to the person beside you and give a high five. Aim for the elbow. Oh, that's sharp. Awesome, Chucks, that was sharp. It, aim for the elbow and the connection follows aim for the elbow connection automatically follows so when we see other Christians doing ministry our first posture should be support and celebration that's really great, that's a good thing we should have an abundance mentality that says more Christians being engaged in ways big or small to us is a good thing in this world. Now, someone's going to automatically say, okay, whoa, 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 yellow flag. What if their methods are flawed? What if their theology is flawed? Well, like, what if I know this, like, objectively? Like, I can see what they're doing. I know they're, um, I know what they're thinking is going to work, but I can see their methodology is flawed. I've talked with them, or I've read their documents, or I know of their ministry, and I know their theology is flawed. Or I know that person personally, or I know enough about them to say, I know their motives are flawed. They're not actually doing this uh, to serve and love Jesus. What do we do about that? Well, 
That's second order. And I think what happens too often is Christians start with their Christian brothers and sisters as part of the family of God. We start with, but I know, or I suspect something about their theology, or I suspect something about their methodology, or I'm not, uh, I'm not confident that they're operating out of the right motives. We start there. We don't start with celebration. If we started with celebration and support, that doesn't um, prevent us from moving and saying, okay, I'm really excited that you want to serve Jesus, but I do have concerns about maybe the way you're doing it or the language that you're using or the scriptural justi- justification that you're using. But I'm really excited that you have a zeal for God and that you're trying to bring hope and love and healing into someone's life. That's very different than hearing about something and saying, mm, yeah, I don't know. I've read some of that person's blog and I think, you, yeah, I have a lot of concerns right out of the gate. That's different. And I think what Jesus is trying to show us is that our fundamental posture should be one of celebration and encouragement when we see Christians getting out there and trying to love people in Jesus' name. Yes, they're going to do it imperfectly. Yes, they're going to do it with flawed theology. Yes, they're going to do it with wrong motives. Newsflash, we're, we're doing the same thing. There's lots of other groups looking at us and saying, oh, if the ECC could get their act together and just do it this way, if they were tighter here with their theology, if they were a bit more clear over here, if, um, if Nelson Covenant Church would just have this as a greater teaching emphasis in terms of Sunday morning, then things would really take off. So it's not about shutting down those discussions, but it's having those discussions within a larger context of, I love and respect the fact that you love Jesus and you're trying to serve him. In Philippians we have a really interesting thing that I don't, I don't know if I... Um, this is where you can kind of tell the scripture is, is God-breathed. I don't know if I would have ever arrived at this position. Paul's in prison. He finds out because he's in prison, there's lots of other people now who have stepped up to the plate in preaching the gospel and going around and proclaiming the lordship of Jesus. And he says this in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That is a for me, that's a hard scripture to swallow. Because I want to say, I only will rejoice if I see ministry being done in the way that I would do it, through the specific theological lens that I would do it, through the right means. I have a, a vague checklist in my mind of what would have to be in place for me to say, that is something that I can rejoice in. And Paul kind of goes the other way. I just rejoice that Christ is being preached. Yeah, there's lots of issues, and we need to confront those in due time. But even in the worst-case scenario where someone's preaching Christ as a way to puff themselves up or to gain attention for themselves, Paul says, you know what? Christ is still being preached. God will still use that imperfect vessel, and the gospel will still is still a seed that will still find good ground that can still bear actual good fruit. God can use the most flawed motives and methodology. 
So he's saying, rejoice. This is a good thing when we see Christians, even if we're quite sure their motivations aren't in the right place, it's still a good thing. Our fundamental posture should be, it's good that they're taking some attempt to love God and serve their neighbor. Now this week where I was really pushed was, how far out does this principle extend? This principle of whoever is not against us is for us. It's one thing when you're talking about an in-house conversation with our Christian brothers and sisters, broadly speaking, around the globe. But can we broaden this to the question of what should our fundamental posture towards non-Christians be who are seeking good but who aren't following us? And obviously not following us, I don't, I, what, I, what I mean by that is they're saying, I'm not a Christian. I don't... Uh, I'm not resting my life, and my confidence is not on the same foundation of Christ that yours is. I just want to be upfront about that. So now we're not talking about someone whose foundation, at least on paper, is the same. It's Christ. We have just kind of a different way of doing things. Can you apply this principle to those who aren't following Christ, but are seeking to do good, and are seeking from their own worldview, their own experience, in, broadly speaking, making the world a better place, making their community a better place? And I would say our response should be the same. It should be a posture of celebration and a posture of support. When we see non-Christians seeking the good of their neighbor, seeking the good of their community, living in a way that is broadly speaking selfish, selfless and generous, we should be like high five. Turn to your neighbor, now that you're a high five expert, Give another high five. Be like, yes, this is a good thing. Go ahead, do it. Go, go, high fives, high fives. Now, some people get uncomfortable at this part. Some people get uncomfortable because there's, a, there's an anxiety that kind of rises up in their guts. They might say their soul. And they say, yeah, but the difference, though, is that Non-Christians aren't doing these things in Jesus' name. They're doing them out of, a, 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 again, a completely different foundation. Their trajectory is not the glory and honor of God. It's, maybe it's something like the public good or the common good, but these people aren't doing it in Jesus' name. And I would say that is absolutely true, but from my theological perspective, I would say that doesn't nullify their efforts. That doesn't mean we look at their intention and their motivation and where there are an overlap of common values and, and, and values and intentions that everyone can say, hey, that's really good. Um, I think um, the fact that they aren't a Christian doesn't nullify all of that to the degree that we, so that we wouldn't say, well, I can't get behind that at all. I can't get excited. I can't give any kind of support, uh, whether implicit or explicit, because... It's not a Christian effort. It's not a Christian ministry. I thought about this in the context of uh, Nathan Berenger. Uh, Nathan's come and spoken at the church before. I've gotten to know him. His daughter goes to my daughter's and son's school. We've connected. He leads Pure Vita Foundation here. He's involved actively in trying to help transition young girls in South America who have been a part of uh, sex slavery, human trafficking, getting them into safe environments, getting them an education, and helping them to kind of reset and restart their life. 
what should my fundamental posture be towards Nathan Berenger and Pure, and Pure Vita Foundation? Should my fundamental posture be, the first, first movement of my heart be, oh, it's too bad he's not doing that in Jesus' name. He's kind of, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not really useful. It's not helpful. Or there's no ultimate eternal point to it. Or should the fundamental posture of my heart be, oh, that's such a good thing. It's such a noble effort. Now, again, I am not naive. We've had good conversations. Every time we talk, the conversation escalates. He gets more and more comfortable saying, I think religion is BS and a bunch of stuff. So I understand we're not on the same page, and I'm not trying to pretend we're on the same page. And if you were to push me and say, yeah, but he's not bringing a full, whole picture of restoration to these girls, because you can't do that if you're not operating out of a Christian worldview. I would say, oh, I totally agree with that. If you were to push me on it, I would say, what he's doing is incredibly good, but in certain key areas, it's incomplete. That doesn't mean, the work, that doesn't mean his work is in vain, but if he's going to push me on it, I would say it is complete. I don't think you can have whole life restoration and hope for this life or the next without the salvific power of Jesus Christ in your life. So I can still create this distinction in my mind but I can do that without denigrating or dismissing or minimizing or operating out of a posture of negativity towards him. You know, I think Christians need to reject a black and white dualism that would just automatically baptize anything done in Jesus' name as being exceptional and praiseworthy and anything being done within, broadly speaking, a secular context to be suspicious or... Maybe not a waste of time. Maybe that's too strong a language. But certainly of a a grossly inferior, um, that the the effort is just not going to bear fruit. I talked with Maren Marslin this week, and she was conveying her experience of her faith journey, leading her to certain political convictions, leading to political engagement in and through the New Democratic Party of Canada, and in meeting, in those meetings, meetings with other people who don't come from a faith commitment, but have traveled a different journey and arrived at some common shared values. What is her posture supposed to be to her colleagues in political activism? I don't think her posture ought to be, well, you didn't arrive at, the, at this same conclusion through the same way that I did, nor are you attempting to figure out what does it mean for us to serve um, the political good in the name of Jesus. Therefore, I want to disassociate from myself from you. I'm not going to really listen to your ideas. I'm not going to open myself to being influenced by your ideas. That's not a proper response. I think the proper response is to say, wow, we had a different journey. Let's talk about it. Let's share our core motivations. But because we have some common ground, I can celebrate and work alongside you. And hopefully, that person, out of that respect of us listening and her listening and and engaging well, they say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I didn't even know where I maybe stand on faith. And maybe maybe I'm even antagonistic towards faith. But I respect that Marin has come to this decision from a different place. And I not only think I can work with her, but I want to work with her. 
because of the graciousness and the love and the care and the understanding that she's extended my way. And so where we can work together along shared values with um, certainly other Christians, but other non-Christians in ministry, I think we should do that. And I think we can do it with biblical integrity. So five quick reflections that come out of this text for me. These are really quick. You can unpack them in small groups or in other conversations. Number one, this is more for, for me than you. We aren't in charge of God's kingdom. And by we, I mean pastors, church leaders, leaders in general. We are, we're not in charge of God's kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom, not ours. And Jesus intends to use all the members of his body through which to do amazing things. Number two, God's kingdom breaks forth through flawed people with flawed theology, with flawed methodology, with flawed motivation. And praise God, because if God didn't work through those kind of people, nothing would be happening. If you believe every time I get up here, my only intention is on a scale, you know, on a, a percentage of zero to 100% is simply just the honor and glory of God, then you don't understand biblical theology, you don't know me, and you don't know your own heart. None of us are bringing crystal pure motivations to almost anything that we do. The Christian life is one in which as we grow, as we serve God, as we love God, God reveals the ways in which we are imperfectly serving him, how we need to grow and develop such that five years from now, 15 years from now, I do preach out of a greater motivation to see Christ exalted, not my own name. And I do serve out of a greater desire to see him get the praise of his kingdom to go forth and not just for any other ulterior motive. Number three, those doing different ministry to us aren't a threat. People who do things differently than we do is not a threat. It really is an opportunity, and it's how God, um, it's how God works in the world often. You know, Paul uses this body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, saying, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And part of that is to say, we have to recognize that if we are saying, the only kinds of Christian ministries that I support will be ones with these 10 boxes checked, you know, that comes close to saying, depending on what those boxes are, but that can come close to saying, I'm only going to support hand ministries in the church. Because I'm a hand, and I appreciate hand ministries, and I want hand ministries to go forward. And I don't see the value of eye ministries or nose ministries. It's weird, it's different. I have very little overlap in my life, so that's a second-class ministry, as far as I'm concerned. And And we can't see things that way. Number four, those non Christians doing genuine good should be encouraged and supported by the church. And by the church, I mean the people. Non Christians in our lives who are seeking to do good in their marriages and their families and their communities, we should be encouraging them. Yeah, we don't need to be naive and realize they're not doing it for God, maybe in the same way that we are. But they're picking up on something. They're picking up on the fact that whether they can articulate it, they're an image bearer of God. And serving, using their power to serve, is part of how God has structured power to be used. So they may not understand that fully, but they're still operating in this area in a way that aligns itself to God's intentions for the world. And whenever we see that happening, we should be saying, oh, that's awesome. And then if there is high trust to be able to say, do you know why I think that's so awesome? You don't even, you know, Nathan, you don't know why you're doing this, or you think you're, you're, you think you're just doing this for these reasons but I think there's a deeper reason. And I think God is using you and working in and through Pure Vita Foundation in a way that you might not even be aware of. Now again, he might hear that and say, whatever, Uh, thanks, 
I guess. But we should be encouraging non-Christians who are serving and loving, and uh, we should be real cheerleaders in their lives. One of the things that our missions committee is considering doing is, I think we're going to do it. We're just trying to figure out the logistics. This summer, we're going to apply to create a leadership scholarship for the high school. So it'll be a Nelson Covenant uh, leadership scholarship. Not exactly sure what the parameters are, but it'll be open to any student who is, has demonstrated tremendous uh, community-focused leadership and transformation. You know, we'll, we'll throw a few buzzwords in there and really and tighten it up. But really, it's our attempt to say, we as a church, as a corporate institution in this community, want to champion high school students who are thinking beyond themselves and are sacrificing time, energy, and money to make their community really, really good. And I hope that not only do we make that a scholarship, but that we make it a robust scholarship. I want to be like in the top five most, like I, I want our scholarship to not be like, here's 250 bucks. I'd like it to be like a two, $3,000 scholarship annually so that we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're actually saying we value not just the contributions of Christians or the contributions of people who are a part of our church. We value this community and we value any voice in our community who is sincerely striving to serve the common good. And number five, when good things are happening, again, this is just a broad uh, principle. When good things are happening, just don't be a Debbie Downer. Just celebrate it and support it. Hard, the hard things are going to find us easily. When good things are happening, even in ministries that we're like, uh, I would prefer if they did it this way a little bit. As long as that ministry isn't totally off the rails, as long as that, uh, those efforts aren't obviously moving in a really anti-God or anti-life or corrupt direction, we should be saying, that's really awesome. We should be giving encouragement. So up until now, this sermon could be heard as, so what should we do when we see Christians or non-Christians going out and, and, and trying to serve God or the community for the common good? We should be supportive. And that is true. But I want us to understand a deeper layer, a deeper level for where that motivation should come from other than, well, yeah, in Mark 9, Jesus said, whoever's not against us is for us. So that was kind of like Jesus said, you, you should be, f as long as people aren't against you, you should be for them. And that is true. But there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper wellspring out of which that motivation can come, and that wellspring is the gospel, the actual gospel story itself. Colossians 1.21 says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And then Paul writes in Romans 5.10, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If Jesus is saying, if people aren't, ag if people aren't against us, they're for us. And that needs to be a fundamental posture before people. Because the God you served was for you and you were against him. You were his enemy. You, as humanity, were actively resisting him. You were actively striving against God. And even though you were against him, 
He came and died for you on your behalf to deliver you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, through the resurrection and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to give you access to a new kind of life, an eternal life that starts now and moves forward. And he's using you, the flawed, imperfect, in-process vessel that you are, he is using you for his glory and the world's good. So if you, who were once an enemy, have been brought near to God and are now part of God's family, those who are not against you, how much more should you be celebrating and supporting them? Let's pray. God, may you give us eyes to see the good things happening in our midst. May we be people of encouragement. And may the truth that even while we were sinners, you died for us. You called us when we were resisting you. You invited us in even though we were against you. May that change our posture on a very, very fundamental level towards both the Christians and non-Christians in our lives. In Jesus' name.